but it is a privilege to be here, especially on a day that is celebrating the call of our Lord to go into all the world and make disciples. That was his last command. We call it the Great Commission. And I see already how some have prepared this, this theme, these world globes here and maps, suitcase, and to uh, see this group on the platform this morning who, who've returned from a mission trip in Mexico, and I know others have been on trips. It's certainly appropriate to have a day set aside to lift up this call of our Lord, to let the world know how much God loves us and bring the gospel to every person. I, I'm going to be talking today about the Great Commission. It's recorded in some way in all the Gospels. Mark is rather terse. He says, Jesus tells them just to go and preach the Gospel to every creature. Luke, the physician, is a little more uh, specific. He says, you begin in Jerusalem, you go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth as my disciples, as my witnesses. Now, John sums it up as Jesus prays, as the Lord sent me into the world, I send you now into the world. But Matthew has a little more in his version of the commission in the closing verses of his gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. We're going to be thinking especially about this, this account of that last command to the church. When he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This afternoon, we're going to deal with that portion of the commission that speaks of the command and the promise to be with us all through the exercise of that command. We're going to get into more specifics, how that relates to our lives, every one of us who are given this commission. But this morning, I want to begin where Jesus starts this command. By the affirmation, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Sometimes in our rush to get on with the work, we fail to realize who it is that commands. We were singing about it when he, we spoke about he reigns. He reigns with all authority, with all power. He is the king of kings. And it's in that authority that he speaks and sends us forth to disciple the nations. That's why I like to turn again and again to the book of the Revelation, which is the last book of Holy Scripture that really sums up all the great themes of the Bible. Some have said its dominant message in this last book of Scripture is that God reigns. He's now assumed his place of authority at the throne 
of God. And all through that book, again and again, the scene shifts to heaven and we see our Lord at the throne. Now it's true the book also includes a, a narrative as to what will happen on earth during these last days of world history. And the situation gets more dire as we come to the end of the story. But again and again, we're lifted up to the throne and we see him who reigns with absolute authority. And one of those glimpses is here in the 12th chapter of the Revelation. If you have your Bible, you may want to turn to that chapter, and particularly verses 10 and 11 and 12, where we hear a loud voice from heaven. This voice appears to represent those who are already in the presence of God who have gone on. It's the triumphant church. And they're calling down to those of us who are still on the earth. It's comforting to realize that we have this assurance coming from those who have overcome the enemy. And they tell us, now has come salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren has been hurled down, who accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice in heaven and all you that are in them, but woe to the earth for the serpent, the devil, has come down, filled with fury, for he knows that his time is short. Not a very comforting word to realize that in this present moment we have an adversary, as is brought out in verse 10. And he is here in the world, very active. And it appears as we come to the end of the age, the activity of Satan, who is continually accusing, continually trying to thwart God's work, becomes more obvious and more destructive. We're introduced to him in the first few verses of this chapter, chapter 12 in Revelation, when he is there represented as a serpent poised before a woman in travail of childbirth. Now this is what we call apocalyptic language. It's language that takes a picture because we're talking about something which is really beyond complete description. We're talking about something that is, that is so awesome you can't fully describe it. So it paints a picture. And you see this serpent which is identified as Satan before this woman who is the church or the Israel of God. And she gives birth to a man-child, the promised Messiah. Satan cannot destroy Christ, though he tries at the cross, but Christ is caught up in the resurrection. He ascends into heaven, takes his place of authority at the throne. So Satan turns his wrath against 
those who are called the people of God, as is explained in the last verse of the chapter. It's a very simple explanation as to why God's people are under such constant attack in this present age. Because, as you note here in verse 10, we have an adversary. He's likened to one like a roaring lion going about sinking whom he may destroy. He will sow seeds of discord trying to create confusion. When the gospel is preached, the Bible tells us he will blind the eyes of people lest they see the light of the glorious gospel and are saved. This is the real struggle going on in the world. It's not what is going on in Afghanistan or Iraq. The real struggle is in the realm of the spirit as this demonic power of darkness, this Satan and his demons are trying to destroy the work that Christ has accomplished in his own atoning ministry. And some of you know what that is. I expect this very week. Some of you have gone through some intense struggles. But every time you read the newspaper, you're aware that we live in a world that is fallen. And as we note in verse 12, the intensity of the attacks of Satan will increase as we come to the close of the age. Some of you are at the point almost of despair, wondering how we will survive. That's why the Great Commission begins with the affirmation of Christ Himself telling us He has all authority. He reigns with all power in heaven and earth. That's what we are celebrating here in this passage. Because He has overcome. And in verse 11, He tells us why His people overcome in the midst of this struggle where we fight against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness that reaches into the highest places. We don't have to live in despair. We don't have to live in defeat. Did you hear that message from heaven with a loud voice? We overcome. And then since three reasons, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and because we love not our life so much as to shrink from death. This is why the church will, will triumph. And why the Great Commission will be fulfilled. We have one who has all authority that sends us forth into the world. That first reason is the blood of the Lamb. Blood. That substance of life which flows through our veins and our body, constantly giving nutrients to every cell of our body, and at the same time taking away waste products, constantly cleansing our system. Blood, a word that is specifically mentioned in the Bible 460 times. And if related terms would be considered which imply blood, like sacrifice, altar, priesthood, covenant, reconciliation, atonement, and many others, I doubt if there's a page of Scripture that does not have some reference to the blood. It's the scarlet thread that weaves the whole scope of Scripture to a beautiful witness to the gospel of redeeming grace. That's brought out here in this, this shout from heaven when the blood is joined with the figure 
of the Lamb, which immediately brings into focus the way by which God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, has designed a way whereby a rebellious people under the judgment of sin and death can yet be reconciled to Him who made us, that we might know Him and love Him and find our joy in Him forever. And so from the beginning, He designed a way for even those of us who are under judgment, who live under condemnation of our sin, and the wages of sin is death, yet we can be restored to His fellowship and for the reason of our existence. And so after the first sin, God Himself slew an animal, and from those bloody garments He wrapped clothing around our forebearers in the garden, enabling them now to have an audience with God, to be in His presence. And that is really the basic idea of, of atonement. The blood covers from sin so that we can come into His presence. And this was brought out so powerfully in the way God had ordained the sacrificial system all through the Old Testament. The one knowing he was guilty would take some innocent animal and take it to the door of the tabernacle. Later the temple would lay his hands upon that innocent one indicating a transference of identity. And then in an individual offering with a knife he would cut the throat of that helpless victim the blood would spurt forth and be caught by a priest and then poured out on the altar. Sometimes it would be thrown at the base of the altar. But it was necessary for the innocent one to die in behalf of the one who was guilty. But when, by faith, you committed yourself to him who gave that promise, that he would accept that offering for you, when you truly identified with the blood, you then could be restored to fellowship and your sins could be forgiven. And this was represented in all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That offering, of course, was necessary because of our sin. We were the ones under judgment. But the desire to be reconciled to God, to be restored to fellowship, oh, that was without sin. And God looks on the thought and intent of your heart. And when that desire, turning from sin in true repentance and by simple faith, trusting yourself to Him who was worthy, who promised to come and cover that iniquity, all oh, that desire, that's what he looked upon. And where it was genuine and sincere, you know what happened? It brought you and God together in a moment of reconciliation at one month. Atonement! So that you could come into his presence now and enjoy 
his fellowship. Of course, these Old Testament sacrifices never were really complete. They had to be renewed upon each offense. And for the nation and public days of, of celebration, the, the priest himself would offer sacrifices for the whole company of believers. But even these had to be repeated year after year, season after season. Because you could never be fully redeemed through the blood of bulls or goats or lambs. They were just object lessons. They were designed to teach us the principle by how a sovereign God who loved us could be restored to people who were in rebellion against Him. And you remember it was on the Passover season that Jesus was led outside the city gate and nailed to the cross of Calvary. While believers were bringing in their lambs through the gates into the city to be offered as a sacrifice, Jesus was nailed to that cross and His blood ran red down that tree forming a red pool at His feet. And we saw Him stricken and forsaken as He suffered for us. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. And that blood goes deeper than the stain of sin has gone. And as He hung there, His body quivering with pain. At last he lifted his voice and cried, It is finished. Everything that had been foreshadowed in the sacrifices under the law had now fulfilled their purpose. You didn't have to go through the object lesson of salvation anymore. Because everything that had been represented and symbolized in these displays of your faith were now consummated in the death of Him who was a perfect offering, the Son of God Himself. And by your identity with Him by faith, through His righteousness, you could come through the veil into the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. You're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold or by some tradition from the fathers. The Bible is very clear. We're redeemed by the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Did you hear that shout from heaven? That's why there's the celebration around the throne. And the triumphant church is calling down to us. We can overcome by the blood of the Lamb. That's the essence of our faith. That God so loved us that He took upon Himself our judgment and gave His one and only Son 
whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But that gospel must be heard to the ends of the earth, for there is no other way, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. As we were reminded so beautifully this morning, that supremacy of Jesus must be our obsession. And so, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the Word. What does it say? Our testimony. You see, this gospel must be heard. It must be told to the ends of the earth. That's why these globes are at the altar. That's why these young people came to share their experience. Because God loves the world. Everyone. There's no distinction between home missions and foreign missions. It's just one great big world that God loves. And the message get, must come to the ends of the earth. It's interesting. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He doesn't talk to us about special callings when some might be called to be evangelists or pastors or teachers or prophets or something else. He doesn't talk about gifts of the Spirit. All of this is interesting. But there's something more basic. And that's the testimony people like you and me. It's the testimony of everyone redeemed by the blood who can declare what you know to be a truth in your own life. That's how the Word gets out to the ends of the earth. We're all ministers of this gospel. And in some way, we will have the privilege of discipling the nations. And I'm going to be talking more about this, that this afternoon. Some of you read the little book, The Master Plan. I, that's an introduction to what we're going to be thinking about. How every one of us can fulfill our calling to make disciples of all nations. But we must get the message out. There when Peter was asked by Jesus what people were saying about him you remember he said well some people say you are a prophet but what do you think Jesus asked and Peter spoke up bless his heart he said you are the Christ the son of the living God well that's that pretty well identifies who Jesus is he is the one who sits on the throne. He is the king. He's the one who has all authority. He is the son of the living God. And apart from him, we do not know really the Father. Or can we come to him? Yes, Peter had it right. And Jesus was glad commended Peter for this faithful testimony. It wasn't just something he had figured out watching the television. He says, that's a revelation given you by God. 
And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's interesting how you might interpret the rock. Some see it as Christ himself, for he is spoken of sometimes as rock. Some see it as uh, Peter, a spokesman of the church. Some see it as the statement of faith that Jesus is the Son of God. No, it's true. But don't overlook the obvious. It was only after Peter gave testimony to his personal faith in the living Savior that Jesus said he would raise up the church. Evangelism is the heartbeat of it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And how will the world ever know the gospel unless somebody tells them and prays for them and goes to them? You see, here's where we all have a part. The church is only as strong as the people in that church bear faithful testimony to their faith in a mighty God. I hope you've had the opportunity sometime these last few days of telling someone how much Jesus loves them. Oh, this world is hurting. Many people don't know that anybody loves them, much less God. What a thrill to tell someone, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much, He took your place on the cross. He died for you so that by His merit you might come into the very presence of God through Him. Yes, the testimony is the way God communicates this gospel to the ends of the earth. But He adds a final reason. By the word of your testimony you said and then he said because you love not your life so much as to shrink from death here is the kind of commitment that it's going to take to get this gospel out a fearlessness a boldness to bear testimony even when it's difficult even when there's opposition. And you can be sure there will be opposition. And it will be most evident whenever you're involved in evangelism. Because when you begin to talk about Jesus, you are invading the occupied territory of Satan. And he will not relinquish his hold on this world without a fight. That's why Paul speaks about wrestling, struggling against the powers and principalities of this world. It's the devil for a season. does have considerable influence in this world. He lives under judgment. He knows he's already assigned to hell. And the only satisfaction he can get now is to entice as many as he can to follow him into his own habitation. Yes, there will be opposition. 
Anytime the gospel is going to be communicated to a lost world. You only have to read the daily newspaper to recognize how subtle is the way Satan works to undermine the message of the gospel. But Jesus sent us forth as witnesses, as he said, beginning where you live, but go to the ends of the earth. And the word witness literally in the Greek is the word martyr. It's one and the same word. So when he sent forth his disciples, he sent them forth as martyrs. They already knew they had died with Christ on Calvary's cross. They not their own. They belonged to him who purchased them in his own blood. That's what set them free. That's why they were so bold. As Paul said, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now that puts a boldness in your witness. Because you can't lose any more than your life. And you already profess you've lost your life when Jesus took your place. Oh, that sets a church free with amazing boldness. And that's, I think, the reason that in so many parts of the world today, the church is enjoying its greatest growth in many centuries. Many parts of Southern Africa, many parts of South America, some parts of Asia, beginning now in India, we're seeing the greatest upsurge of evangelistic church growth and church planning than we have in centuries, probably even after the Reformation. Why? Well, if you'll notice, these are areas that are under great persecution for the most part. It doesn't add to your credentials to put down Christian on your application in those countries. In fact, you could be arrested. You live usually in poverty. Isn't it strange that where we see the greatest examples of Christian witnessing today are in impoverished, persecuted lands? So it was in the book of Acts. And it may come to that day more sometime in America. I don't know what. But God loves us too much to let us go on in apathy. As if nothing in the world is different we live under a world that's headed toward hell. And we can't be indifferent when our loved ones around us and people that we know haven't heard the gospel. Oh, I need to speak to myself here because I know too much comfort. But I read that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. So don't fear hard times. Don't fear suffering. God may use that to make you realize there's something more important. There's something that's eternal. It was in 1964 there was an uprising in the little nation of Rwanda. I understand some of you have been on a witness team to Rwanda. 
And this uprising, Christians were under uh, attack so often. One evening, a truck with some rebel came to a little mission station near the border, and they demanded that the pastor, Pastor Yona, and the schoolmaster go with them. These men didn't want to leave the security of the compound, but they had no, no option. They were pushed into this old battered truck and driven away in the direction of Kigali. When the truck crossed the Narambongo Bridge, stopped, the two prisoners were told to get out, and now their hands were bound behind their back. It appeared obvious the intent of these rebels. But while they were waiting, they, they had time to pray. Then one of the rebels turned to Pastor Yona and ordered him to walk back to the bridge over the river. And he complied. But as he began that journey, he lifted his voice and started to sing. It's a song that we sometimes sing here, though I haven't heard it in recent years. I remember it as a boy. It's well known, though, in Africa. Particularly, they sing it at funerals. Some of you may remember it. And try to picture in your mind, Pastor Yona, walking toward that bridge, lifting his voice and singing. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. Do you know it? In the sweet by and by I shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore. But that day, Pastor Jonah did not finish the song on this earth. For when he reached the bridge, he was shot. And one of the rebels came behind and kicked his body into the river. The schoolmaster felt sure he was next. But to his surprise, these rebels got into an argument. And suddenly they turned to their remaining captive. They loosened his bonds and told him to flee into the jungle and never come back. And he did escape to tell the story. And he said that it appeared to him that these rebels were utterly shaken. That never before had they seen anyone go singing to his death. That's the kind of commitment that has always confounded this world.
that joyous dedication to follow Christ, whatever the cost. Now, I think I must say, in this land of liberty, I doubt if we're going to be called upon in our lifetime to lay down our life, as so many of our brothers and sisters have, in more difficult places. But in our spirit, in our heart, we should already reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to this world, but alive to Christ. That's why we can sing. That's why the church is triumphant. And that's why we can hear that triumphant body in heaven calling down to those of us still struggling on this earth, telling us, now has come salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. For the devil has been hurled down. He's defeated. And even though for a time he seems to have great, great strength, he knows that he has lost the battle. And his church, the church of Christ, is triumphant. And while it does not yet appear all that we will be, we know this, our Lord is coming someday in the clouds of glory. And when He returns in triumph to meet those on earth who now are His people, bringing with Him the triumphant church in His presence already, when He comes, then we shall see Him as He is and the veil will be pulled aside, and we will see Him in all His glory. And then every knee will bow before Him, and every tongue will declare to the glory of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. He has won the victory. That's reality. That's eternity. And we can live with that assurance now. It's going to be tough. There's going to be suffering. And there's going to be sacrifice. But whatever comes, you can live in the assurance the one who sends you, he has all authority. He is the king. And he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And as I want to say this afternoon when we close the seminar, he gives us the greatest promise in the Bible. I will be with you all the way even to the end of the age. Are you living with that promise now? Oh, that's the promise of the Great Commission.
And as you think about the place that God has given you in this ministry, whether home, as it is for most of us, or whether overseas, or whether it's a cross-cultural contact with someone living down the street who has a completely different lifestyle. It may even speak awkwardly a different language. But you see them as a person that God loves. Oh, those are people that we are sent forth to make disciples. I expect you've been inspired as I have seeing these young people up here give their testimony. certainly was a blessing to me. May their numbers increase. I imagine that many of them already have sensed a leading in the direction of some way being a, a missionary. I hope their numbers will increase. That's where I've spent so much of my life trying to teach them. But most of us will stay here. We won't have the privilege of going overseas. We can still be with them, though, in our prayers. That's what they need most of all. In our gifts, in our hopes, in our dreams, looking to the day when finally all of the redeemed will be gathered around the throne. God may have spoken to some of you this morning to get more active, get more involved in this work, which is really the greatest work of all. Some way, being a part of the Great Commission. You can make that decision right now. You need to lay aside some other things, get your priorities in order. You can make that even now as we pray. And Father, I thank you for this privilege to join the people of this church to think upon who you are and your power, your authority, and to join in the praise of him who is worthy, the Lamb who bore our sins away. Oh, Father, hasten the day when finally this gospel of the kingdom will reach the ends of the earth, and you will gather all your people to praise you forever, for you are worthy. I pray in Jesus' name.